Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With us today from our politics team, we have Jennifer Bray, Harry McGee and Jack Horgan-Jones. And you're all very welcome. COVID, of course, remains the main story, if not quite the only story. And yesterday we had 93 deaths, which is the worst number in a single day since the crisis began. But the news this morning largely centres around the fact that uh, schools for pupils with special needs, which were due to return tomorrow, will not actually be returning. Jack, what do you think of this? Yes, that is uh, that is the case, and I think that um, I think it, look, it, there's no getting away from the fact that this is, is massively politically problematic uh, for the government, both in in a kind of narrow sense, in that you know returning these very vulnerable cohorts of students to school is an absolute imperative for the students themselves and uh, for the parents because of the very real damage that it has developmentally on these individuals, you know. And then also in the broader sense, in that the, the the system, for want of a better word, has to kind of prove that it's able to, in little small chunks initially, start to restart itself after going into this massive lockdown after Christmas. It has to show that it can grapple with all the various issues associated with reopening small parts of the economy and society, whether it be industrial relations issues or other issues. And start doing it, and and it has fallen at the first hurdle now twice. If you know, if you follow my meaning, because it's the second time that they've tried to to bring uh, special schools back, and it doesn't it doesn't bode well for you know perhaps more intractable problems down the way, like bringing not you know sixteen or eighteen thousand uh, special needs kids back, but you know the guts of a million across the wider school system, and restarting construction or non-essential retail. And, and, you know, every single one of these problems, presuming that they manage to actually sort them as they go along, becomes then a, a, a spinning plate that has to be kept in the air as more and more problems multiply and they have to keep their, their foot on the throat of the virus, you know. So it, it, it's, it's a small example both of, of how difficult and intractable all these problems are associated with, with, with the current phase of pandemic that we're going through. And also um, a fairly a fairly damning indictment of, of kind of all involved that they haven't been able to to actually get this sorted for a group of people who so clearly are amongst the most vulnerable in society and so clearly need need education services. It's a failure, Harry. But I think in this instance, anyway, I mean, you could argue that that Norma Foley has right on her side in her argument. I think she has, uh, Hugh. I think if you go back and rewind to the original dispute when the government tried unilaterally to reopen the schools for Leaving Cert students and also for students with special needs, that the criticism that came from the union side and from the teacher side was there had been a lack of consultation. That argument can no longer be used because there has been intensive consultation over the past 10 days. And I think the arguments that she has made, I thought she was particularly... um, strong on on these points on Morning Ireland this morning uh, when she uh, uh, defended 
her position. And essentially, um, she's talking about a very small cohort of students, 18,000 18, in all. So uh, when the uh, chief medical officer said he was concerned about 1.1 million movements uh, when they decided to lock down uh, the broad, broader school system, you know, you're talking about a very tiny proportion of that. And everybody recognises uh, that these children need to have structured education. I mean, we've heard the very plaintive tales from parents uh, about the, uh, the sheer amount of work and frustration and energy sapping uh, uh, chores they have to do just in order uh, to keep their child in some kind of a routine. I was listening to a woman uh, on radio last week uh, talking about her son who has autism and he likes a bath, but she said she ends up having to give him 15 baths every day. Sometimes she has to give him a bath in the middle of the night. He's obsessed with uh, shower gels. So she spends nearly €100 a week on shower gels because he likes the kind of the viscous nature of them and the colours. And he, at the moment, is deprived of that kind of structure and that type of routine uh, that is so uh, important uh, for these kids. So we understand the context of it and how important it is. And uh, I I thought what Norma Foley said this morning was quite striking. Uh, She said that the government has tried its best to reopen it for this small cohort. She accused the unions of being disingenuous Uh, Because John Boyle, the General Secretary of the INTO, said that his union had not specifically instructed its members not uh, to go uh, into school. But I mean, the the message coming from the union uh, couldn't be disguised in any way. It was saying that it was very concerned uh, about the level of infection in wider society. So even though it wasn't saying so in so many words, I mean, the clear uh, subliminal message from the union was, you know, don't go to school, uh, folks. And I, I think, you know, she, I think the, the other thing about her argument that I thought was quite strong this morning was that she talked about supermarket workers, about guards, about nurses, about other frontline workers who are not necessarily uh, working at the coalface of the COVID problem who continue uh, to go uh, to work uh, every day. And I, I think that, the, that, that rather than it being uh, a further blow to the government, I think the pressure at this moment in time uh, is very much on the unions. Jennifer, there's a, there's a couple of things that strike me about that. One is there's a bit of complexity going on here because there's more than one trade union. There's FORSA, I think, more, mostly represents the, uh, the, the SNAs. Uh, the INTO represents, represents the teachers. It does strike me as well is that these teachers are maybe a little bit unusual among frontline workers because unlike even people in the health service, they're not really in a position to wear full PPE. It's a very hands-on um, job working with, with working with children who have who have special needs of one sort or another. So you know, I'm not saying that some concerns are not uh, are not unjustified there. Um, however, you can see this disjunction, can't you, between the advice from Neffet is that the, the contribution of this very small cohort of pupils to movements across the country is minimal. But that's not what's concerning the teachers and the SNAs. What's concerning them is their exposure within those individual classrooms. Yeah, exactly. And you're right, the INTO and FORSA, they represent the uh, special need assistance. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of different voices here in, in this debate. Um, and I think the message from the Department of Education and from the Minister has been um, to rely on that advice from NEFIT, which is that schools are a safe environment um, and that it, generally they are, they are safe for, for the children who go there. But I think on the union side of it, they're, you know, I think they had a number of asks and 
they were looking in specifically in relation to, I suppose, maybe increased COVID testing, um, maybe ironing out some of the different safety measures a little bit more so that it could enable them to go back um, at a, in a way that they felt uh, was safe for them and the, and, the, and the kids as well, it must be said. And the other thing I think that they probably would have highlighted would be the fact that the cases are still so high. I mean, I know, comparatively speaking to where we were a week or two ago, we look like we're in a much better place. But if you compare it to where we were when we first had our first shutdown last year, I mean, it's astronomical, really. So uh, there's those kind of issues coming into play for them. I think even from speaking to people in the Department of Education yesterday, their argument for people who work there was that they have never had such a level of engagement um, with the unions. And they were very keen to point out that if this thing didn't go ahead, it wouldn't be for lack of trying or for want of trying or communication or um, discussions between them and the union. But I definitely felt before the announcement was made yesterday that this was sort of what was coming down the track. There wasn't really much optimism that these talks were going to work out. And I think that whatever happened in, inside those talks that we see today, Harry and Jack were talking about what Norma Foley was saying this morning, the mood was obviously extremely, extremely pessimistic. And I see this morning people kind of coming out two sides of this argument. I could see people coming out one side saying it's an awful um, failure on the part of Norma Foley um, and that these children are being let down. Equally, I've seen people on the other side saying, well, why did the union not try harder? Or, you know, why are they taking a different stance to other um, people who work in frontline emergency services like ambulance personnel, people in hospitals, Gardaí, etc., etc., on and on. Um, and I think you can have all of those opinions at the same time without either one being invalidated. Uh, I don't think it has to be kind of a zero-sum game. I think there are concerns that the teachers have. I think the kids, those kids need, um, they need to get back to those classes, really. Uh, and I think it's a failure on part of, of, of Norma Foley. So I think it's a, it's a mixture of all three as opposed to just one or the other. Yeah, the Irish approach to education has been quite particular, Jack, during this during this crisis. There was no return to school until the summer holidays came last year, and that was probably unusual in a European context. Most European countries, and indeed the UK, at least partly, uh, returned to education before the summer. And then there was a lot of focus on Norma Foley, obviously a new TD and a new minister, and the whole challenge of, of going back to school in the autumn, which she was broadly seen to have dealt with fairly well, and she got quite good end of term reports herself from the political analysts uh, over the over the Christmas period. But now this is the real test, isn't it? Because my guess would be that the fear is not just that these special needs children don't get the education that they absolutely both deserve and need, but that the whole education system will be too slow to get back up and running and the nightmare vista of another cancelled leaving cert and all the rest of that starts looming quite quickly. I think that's true. Um, I think that this is the most pressing, but also the most pressing problem that she faces um, because it's the most vulnerable cohort, but it's also the smallest chunk of a much larger piece. And I think that what may come back to haunt the government on this, I think Jennifer is right, first of all, there's good arguments on both sides, but what may come back to haunt the government on this is the fact that they made education, and we know how close it is to Michal Martin's heart, they made education this enormous kind of keystone piece of their management of the pandemic that we had kept kids in schools. Right. That was the that was the article of faith that they developed. But in doing so, they seem to have refused to countenance the idea that at some point they may have to kind of cross that Rubicon. They may have to close schools or, as the case may be, not reopen them 
after a break. And there doesn't seem to have been any kind of serious planning about, you know, how they might proceed in a reopening scenario. It was just the schools will remain open, not if and when we have to close them. Here's how you go about doing it in a sensible, clever way. Here's the the, the problems that we anticipate coming down the road, because God knows when it comes to a matter around schools, you could have anticipated industrial relations issues. Here's the leveled approach to reopening education agreed beforehand with the education partners. So we have a kind of roadmap to follow. So, you know, they seem to have have made a virtue of kind of, you know, hoping for the best, but at the same time, not planning for the worst. And I think that's in keeping with a lot of the, the issues, including around uh, the vaccine that may come home to roost for this government because, you know, they're now in in situ since last June. The problems that they're facing into can't squarely be blamed on the last crowd or the fact that, you know, this huge tsunami it hit, it hit us in the shape of, of a pandemic. These are now problems that we've been living with for quite a while. And, and smart and dexterous policymaking would have seen some way around these corners and some way down the road and anticipated some of these problems coming. Mm. The vaccines, Jen, that is, I think, going to be the acid test. It's probably when we look back on the history of this government, it's going to be the test how well it delivered these these vaccines. And it is, to be fair, it is still very early days. Um, we've really only been up and running two weeks, two full weeks, maybe two and a bit weeks. And there are uh, issues which are of concern about transparency and then more recently kind of strange situations with family members of of, of hospital staff getting, getting vaccines. Um, but this might just be growing pains, mightn't it? I mean, we should reserve judgment to some degree still. Yeah, I think um, a lot of it has been growing pains. Not only that, I mean, we're totally constrained by the amount of supply that we're getting in. You can only distribute what you have, you know, and I think that's an important point to make. I think um, when the uh, vaccine task force released their report, which we talked about on this podcast before, where they discussed how what their rollout was likely to look like, um, I think they made it very clear that in the beginning, in the first phases in January and I suppose in the first quarter in, in, uh, until spring, that the rollout would be quite slow and um, that this would happen for a number of reasons, both because this is happening across the globe. Every country wants their fair share uh, and some more uh, of the vaccine. There's only so much vaccine that can go around in the early stage, but also because the vaccines that were available in the early stage are the ones that are really hard to distribute are the ones that are hard to manage logistically. Um, and, you know, for all of those reasons, the beginning would be a much slower ramp up. And I think they had a graph where they showed like in the beginning, it was a very kind of slow kind of rise. And then when we get, I mean, this is the hope now that when we get past into late spring, that it ramps up massively and we see this huge increase in people getting vaccinated. Um, and we're seeing that that is happening uh, in relation to the, the slower rollout. Also, the, the, the cohort of people who are being vaccinated now, they are, as we know, people in long term residential care, nursing homes, um, uh, frontline healthcare workers, ambulance personnel, people in, as they call it, patient facing uh, roles in, in hospitals. And I think a lot of that that work can to people who don't work in 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 frontline healthcare services or don't know people who work in frontline or don't have someone close to them. A lot of that can go unseen to us. You know, we're not inside these hospitals every day seeing people getting the vaccine. It was great in the first few days when we saw images and videos of people getting the job because we felt a lot of hope when we looked at that and thought, well, great, this is finally happening and it's been rolled out. But I do think that what's happening now often happens behind the scenes, uh, unless, of course, you know somebody who's in that hospital and who sends you a WhatsApp with themselves getting the vaccine and you think that's great. Um, and so the next phase then, 
the next phase, I think, is where the, the scrutiny, I think this will be the harder part for, for the government. If they think that the scrutiny now is, is difficult and bad, well, I think they'd want to kind of buckle in for the next phase because this is the part where we get vaccines that are easily to, easy to distribute, easy to um, store. We don't need those deep freeze uh, units that we saw uh, in the centralised unit. So we're talking potentially about the AstraZeneca vaccine, the Oxford vaccine, and this will be the one that the government are hoping will get into GPs and pharmacists. So that's where the rest of us who don't work, kind of frontline healthcare, etc., can go and get our vaccine uh, as the months roll on. So that's the phase, I think, where there'll be bigger problems because, you know, to a certain degree now, we weren't that constrained by the number of vaccinators that we needed. We know that was a problem that was raised in the report. How many vaccinators we can get in place, where are they going to come from? Uh, and how are they going to, let's say if it was a GP, how is that GP going to do their own job and their own surgery, but also be in this mass vaccination centre? So when things ramp up, I think that's where we see the constraints on the people who give the vaccines. Um, and also particularly in relation to the IT system, you know, we've already seen that in the beginning, uh, in the first few weeks, when they were setting up this system, people were uh, talking about using pen and paper to record uh, who's getting the vaccines to put it into the system. And my understanding of what happened there was that when they set up the system, the various different companies that they went in and the hope was that each nurse or healthcare practitioner would set up their own profile on the system and they would input, let's say, Hugh Linehan sitting here beside me and I just gave you a job and I put in batch number and your name and that's in the system. But the nurses had a lot on their plate and they didn't have the time and some of them couldn't figure out the technology. I mean, I know for certain, like I can manage the tech I have now, but you throw me anything new and I'm at sea. So, you know, there was that they couldn't they couldn't get in. There was issue with the amount of profiles that were available. All the stuff that we don't see, all the stuff that we don't know was going on. Um, so they need to sort out that system. We cannot have a system whereby you've got to ramp up into mass vaccination centres, which Jack has a piece today pointing out that they'll be open hopefully from early February and not have the IT system. Like you can't be using pen and paper um, for that. So I think the next phase will be crucial, I think, as we move into it. The personnel, the IT systems, the logistics of it, um, and of course, getting the vaccines in, because we know uh, globally there's a huge um, race to get vaccines. It's like the it's like the modern day space wars, <laughs> really. But yeah, so I, I'd say watch that space. I think some of the, the, I think all of the criticism actually is valid. And I think this is a phase in the government's plan where they just really they just need to get it right. People have been through an awful lot. Everybody's exhausted. I mean, look at the amount of deaths we saw yesterday. People are emotionally battered. They need to get this right. They need kind of a bit more firepower. And I think that's why we've seen big changes in the Department of Health recently. We've seen Robert Watt coming in. Uh, I think uh, Stephen Donnelly has new advisors uh, in place. Um, and the impression that I get is that they want to really light a fire this year and they really really need to do it and to be honest especially with the, the kind of new salaries and everything for the sector there's no excuse that they don't yeah i want to ask jack in a minute about some of those logistics which jen was talking about but first harry can i ask you if you were the head of a major medical institution in ireland a hospital for example and you had a few vaccines left over would you think it would be a good idea or a bad idea to have your close relatives on the list of, of those who get those vaccines well i mean that's uh, quite obvious Hugh. a fairly bad idea Zero out of 10 there uh, for perspective and for uh, nows. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And it, it just blew up so badly in the face of the coom. And Paul Reid yesterday, you know, was saying that the system has to be transparent. It has to be credible. And it has to be uh, such that it engenders the trust of the population. This was a complete and utter no-no. 
Um, but um, it does show how complicated. I mean, everything to do with COVID is complicated. I remember early in the uh, uh, outbreak, uh, speaking to people who were involved in contact tracing and organising contact tracing, and they said that it was like designing a plane while you're flying it. They have to design very complex systems in every imaginable way uh, for a uh, virus that is unpredictable, uh, that is unknown, and as we've seen, you know, can have some nasty little twists associated with it, such as the UK variant, the South African variant, and now the Brazilian variant. And they didn't know what the uh, impact of the virus was at the start, how serious it was, how it affected different people. And as we've seen, it's affected different people in vastly different ways. Some people are asymptomatic. Some people who are perfectly healthy have the worst possible uh, symptoms when it does uh, strike. We were talking about schools and uh, when is it best to open schools and to close schools. I think there was probably a lack, as Jack was saying, a lack of a contingency plan in relation to what point do we arrive at when we need to start closing schools and the government was holding on to it, clinging on to it uh, like a, a, a person on a, on a shipwreck clinging on to the, the, the mast. They didn't really have a contingency plan. But then even the best laid contingency plans can sometimes go awry as well. For example, in New York, uh, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, said that they would, they would close schools when the positivity rate exceeded 3%. I mean, if that happened in Ireland, that would have that would have been in late November, early December, uh, we would have been closing all our schools. And that was kind of like an arbitrary figure that he chose. And that actually damaged him uh, politically as well. So everything is nuanced. Everything is subtle. And then you have to essentially look at the facts on the ground and adjust accordingly. Now, going back to the vaccine and the vaccine distribution, Hugh, um, it's so complicated. You're talking about an entire population. And what you basically need is the CSO to do a census. Um, I, I know uh, a friend of mine who's elderly parents. Uh, one is 83 and one is 85. The 85-year-old has underlying conditions. And, you know, they're not really sure when they're going to be called and how are they going to prioritise the different age groups? Is it going to be the GPs that are going to do it? How do they know that they're going to capture everybody? And then when you start working down towards younger age groups who don't even go to GPs or don't even have a doctor, how, how are all of those people going to be captured and that's the kind of the task that's in front of Brian McCra and his expert group to devise a, a very complicated system that captures the entire uh, population and to ensure that a vaccination programme takes place in a very timely and a very quick fashion. And it's extraordinarily difficult. As Jennifer was saying uh, uh, and as Jack was saying, the arrival of the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, uh, vaccine will be a big game changer because it doesn't have to have so many protocols in relation to storage and distribution. It can be uh, uh, stored and transported at a much higher uh, degree, uh, which means that it is easier to handle and easier and quicker to distribute. But just going back to the mess to which you referred, I mean, one hospital uh, last week, um, it, it had vials left over, it had vaccines left over, and it gave it to construction workers who happened to be working on the hospital site. The difficulty is that, now that those guys are out of sequence. Not only do they have to get the first vaccine, but they have to come back in a number of weeks and get the second vaccine as well. So already a system that should have been put in place has already been cast awry. Yeah, I mean, I think I think everything you say pretty much there, Harry, is right. But 
But it does strike me, Jack, that uh, one of the things that people are saying about this this massive task, in, not just here, but in countries across the world, is that you need to be careful not to make the perfect the enemy of the good, and that some of the problems that they've had in New York for uh, for for one was they put in place a too complicated ranking system of who should get it first and who should get it second, and that complexity meant that you did end up with vaccines not being used, at wastage, um, slowing down the system. So that the question which Harry raises about who did the GP decide to put on their list. I think it has to be just very straightforward in general. And once we get past these cohorts of the uh, the nursing homes and the frontline health workers, it just has to be totally age-based, I think, doesn't it? Uh, yes, that would be one way of doing it. Um, but it, I, I don't have any faith that, that the government will have the the kind of capacity to 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 cut through just because and 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 simplify it like that. I mean, I don't think we're going to be in a situation like they are in Israel where you know you have your mass vaccination centers, it's segmenting by age and then you can kind of turn up for the kind of slops bucket at the end of the day and 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 if you're if you're uh, if there's an, enough vaccine left, you get you get the shot in the arm. Uh, I just think that that like, you know, there's there's too many interest groups here um and and irish politics and policy making is kind of you know inherently responsive to those interest groups like it's very easy to to have that to have your say at a kind of national policy making level and and if you look further down the uh the prioritization list i mean you can kind of see where the problems are going to emerge because it does go from healthcare workers and uh, nursing home residents and staff into an age based approach but then when you hit the sixth cohort of prioritization it just says key workers and there's a little kind of explanation note attached to that, you know, those who are vital to the rollout of the vaccine. So you think, yeah, sure, truckers and, and, and you know, those uh, administering the vaccines, the vaccinators themselves. But like, tell me now with a straight face that there isn't an argument to be made for almost every every sector of the economy to present themselves as key workers. Um, and tell me also with a straight face that that's not going to happen. So I don't think that it's going to be a straightforward process. And I think that we can expect a huge amount of, of lobbying of government and, and perhaps a huge amount of, of pressure on the National Immunisation Advisory Committee, which is the, the body that is actually set up to independently establish these cohorts uh, and the, the prioritisation for the vaccine, um, that there could well be a lot of pressure coming to bear on those those those, those kind of institutions, because it, it is such an incredibly pressured process. There is an incredible amount of scrutiny on every single step here. And and you see that with people getting really kind of wonkish and obsessive about delivery timetables and, you know, there actually being an, an, a, a, an audience out there for, you know, how for pieces on how the European Medicines Agency makes its makes its uh, decisions. It reminds me a little bit of, of the last uh, of the last crash when everyone became an expert on kind of bond yields and, and the gap between the, the, the German 10 year bond and the Irish one. You know, um, the capacity of, of people to be interested in, in things that, that immediately affect them and for that to be an important part of their political decision making is, is pretty unlimited, you know. So I think that every part of this process, we should expect there to be huge focus on. And the... AstraZeneca, which, as Harry said, there's a great hope that it it, it will make the rollout rollout easier. And indeed, further down the line, other ones, the Johnson and Johnson, which I think is a single shot one, which would 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 also make the process easier, perhaps later in the year. But the government was looking to get stocks of AstraZeneca in in advance of it being cleared uh, for for use by the by the EMA. That then there's some talk this morning that that's not possible. Yeah, I think if you look at the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, it's a good it's a good example of, you know, the complexities inherent in trying to balance both the kind of supply angle and the distribution angle. So we wanted to get 
this onto the pitch as quickly as possible. So last weekend, it kind of emerged that the department was in uh, discussions with the, the, the drug maker AstraZeneca and also the European Commission to see if we could kind of get the supplies of the drug of, of the vaccine into the country so they could be posted around to the GPs and the pharmacists and so on. So once it was it was approved, um, we could actually roll it out very quickly. Now, the European Commission told us yesterday that it's not actually possible under the terms of the advanced purchase agreements that were struck with the manufacturers to do that before uh, before approval actually lands in. So that seems to be a, a good quantity of, of cold water poured on that idea. Um, and then on the other side of that of that equation, you have the, the desire to kind of ramp up and get distribution ready. So we hear uh, the, the cabinet memo on vaccines yesterday um, had all these plans for mass vaccination centres that Jennifer alluded to earlier on. You know that they'd be ready to go for early February. And that's in response, presumably, to a sunny or optimistic outlook on how quickly we're going to get AstraZeneca in. Then we get the news that AstraZeneca probably won't arrive in before uh, it, it gets regulatory clearance. And then if you look elsewhere in that memo, it says that the, the information from the company is that we can expect it by mid-February. Now, by mid-February may mean the day after it get, gets authorised, if it gets authorised on the 29th of January. But it may also mean the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th of February, in which case, you know, it'll become this open question, how quickly we can get Astra in? Are we doing as good a job as possible of getting AstraZeneca in? Where is everyone else in terms of getting AstraZeneca in? And it just becomes these the, the, this kind of, you know, vicious news cycle in and of itself. And I think that's going to happen time and again uh, around every single small part of, of the vaccine rollout. And that's why there's so much political danger inherent in any miss step you know hence jen's point about ramping up skills and 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 the teams in the department department of health itself is yeah because jen i wanted to talk to you about something else entirely different i want to ask we we did a podcast on the mother and baby homes last friday and the report was released earlier in the week it seems to me increasingly likely that it's going to blow up in the government's face this report yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's kind of already happened, to be honest with you. But I do think there is more road left in this. Um, and like you said, you'd, you'd podcast on this last week. And when it came out, when the report was released last week, um, and I had a, a read of it like everybody else, um, there was a few things that struck me uh, early on. And that was, you know, in relation to the findings. So a few examples, it, you know, it stated that there was no evidence um, of, of forced adoptions, you know, and that women had time uh to reassess, I suppose, their decision. It talked about how survivors' anger towards Tuslo was misplaced. It talked about the work that women had to do, saying that actually it was quite similar to the work that they would have been doing at home um, anyway. And I think if you take kind of some of those statements and other ones that people have raised over the last few days, they do not um, marry and they do not, uh, they don't sit very well uh, alongside the testimony given by the women, uh, specifically in the confidential report part of the committee, which if you have a chance to read, it, honest, it'll just break your heart. And, you know, all of those women saying the same thing, uh, basically, that, you know, in, in relation to their experiences and in relation to the conditions. Now, some women did actually take a different, some women felt that the, the mother and baby homes were a refuge from stuff that they were going through at home um, and absolutely not to take away from that at all. But by and large, the testimonies were of the same hue. And I think if you if you take those statements made by the commission about, you know, the forced adoptions, the misplaced anger, that the the, the work, etc. I mean, we had other parts of the report where women were talking about, many women actually talked about how their most abiding memory was of other women looking out the window screaming as their baby was driven up the road by another family and that they never had a chance to say goodbye. How do you marry that with that? Um, you know, 
we've heard many times from um, people who are adopted of hitting a brick wall every time they try to get access to their birth records. You know, when you marry that with the statement about misplaced anger. Um, and then we hear, you know, and we read about women who had to cut the grass with scissors and every time they, you know, scrubbed the, the length of the floor that, you know, a nun or somebody would come along and deliberately kick, a, you know, a bucket of dirty water or whatever so that they could scrub it again. I mean, how do you marry that with the statement that that's just what they would have been doing at home? And I think that that was the beginning of the problem in relation to the report. It was the fact that if this was uh, a historical context, it was really good. It was very interesting when they talked about how in the beginning about how the, the fledgling Irish state wanted to resist certain kind of turns towards modernity, didn't want some of the more liberal, I suppose, values that modernism would have brought in and that they wanted this atmosphere uh, where there was a dominance of church and, and state, etc. That's really interesting historical context, really important, really um, important to understand this claim that it was society's problem and that it wasn't just one or the other. That's all fine, but it's the fact that if this was an investigation, it didn't really find anything that validated the experiences of the survivors. And that's what I've been picking up over the last few days, that um, the first big problem was then, I think the second problem uh, well, uh, when you move on from that is what is the government's actual position on this? Um, they haven't really come out and said at any stage, you know, that they disagree with the findings uh, or that they will undertake any further analysis. And that matters because when you have a report like this and when you have survivors groups and such a backlash, even politically, I think it is important that they come out. And I think the, the SOC Dems in particular today are, are going to come out and, and call for the government to release their own assessment of their own view uh, of the findings. And we heard at the weekend on The Week in Politics and RTE, Joe O'Brien was kind of being asked about this. Catherine Connolly was on and she was going through some of the failings of it. And Joe O'Brien said, well, I went through the report myself as well with a pen and I questioned, I circled some highly questionable language um, I mean, what does he mean when he talks about that? What's the highly questionable language? What's the problem there? Uh, we have Roderick O'Gorman, who was on primetime the day that the report came out. And I think he was repeatedly asked, you know, do you agree with this? And didn't really answer. So I do think actually the government should come out um, purely for those survivors and for the men and women, everybody affected and say, OK, here's the government's position on the findings um, and here's our, our steps next. But they seem to be reluctant to do that. Um, I suppose the other aspect then following on from that probably the bigger part really um is what are they going to do about it um and they have to act fast um because a lot of the people who are affected are getting older i mean we've heard recently a lot of stories of people who managed to track down their birth parents or when they finally got the details they had just died so really time is of the essence so Roderick O'Gorman has said that the information and adoption tracing legislation will be ready i think he said by march um or april um, so that can move through the doll and maybe be in place by the end of the year. That's really, really important. And we know from previous governments that every time they tried to address it, they couldn't. Um, Catherine's Pone tried to do it. And the Attorney General's advice was, you've got a right to privacy. You've got a right to information. One does not trump the other. Or one cannot trump the other. Therefore, you either need, uh, I, I don't think it was his advice that you need a referendum. But I remember talking to her before and she basically said, it probably will have to go to a referendum. Now, because of GDPR, um, Roger O'Gorman seems to think that they won't need that. We'll see. I mean, that would be great, but um, we'll see what happens there. The other aspect then as well is the redress schemes. Um, the commission recommended two redress schemes, uh, I think, and they'll have to move really quickly on that. And then there's the memorialisation um, aspect of it as well. 
uh, and that will have to be inclusive of everybody and that can't leave anybody out and this report did not examine every single county home it didn't go into every single institution and I think that will be a question how do you have a memorialization process that doesn't leave anybody out uh, um, and that will require great um, emotional sensitivity and also great political sensitivity I think. I think Jenna's laid out all the issues really absolutely excellently there, there, Harry, and there there are many of them. It does strike me, and after we did we did that podcast last Friday, I mean I asked Pat Leahy about this at one point, is that the the shortcomings, and there clearly are shortcomings in, in in language use, language which might be appropriate in a discussion in another context, an academic context or whatever, about the social the social backdrop against which this happened. I mean, that's all fair enough, but there's a duty of care and responsibility to the people who are damaged by this process, which we which we all acknowledge. And there's something about this report, the way in which the people who offered their testimony were treated in terms of getting that information, the fact that they still can't get access to their own to their own birth stories, that in a way seems to me a little bit like a continuation of the abuse of these people and their and their parents, which happened over so many decades. In other words, we haven't fixed the problem. Yeah, I think you're quite right, um, Hugh. I think these people should have been at the the, the survivors and the, the the victims and those who have passed away should have been at the centre of this. And these, these are the most important people. Uh, I, on the day, read through almost all of the report. I mean, it was three, over 3,000 uh, 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 pages long. I mean, I focused on the day on a, on a woman called Alice Lister, uh, who was uh, completely anonymous. So I, no reference to her on Google, no reference to this very unusual family name uh, in Dublin uh, or anywhere. But from 1920 two until 1957, for a period of 35 years, she was an inspector and she was one of the few people who actually had the courage to speak out and highlight the awful, impecunious, cruel circumstances uh, that pertained in these places. And we're talking about institutions. We're talking about uh, uh, not only um, those who who went in uh, that were institutionalised, but also the staff were institutionalised. We also had society being institutionalised. But the thing is that that doesn't give society a free pass. You can't blame society. Individuals have to bear responsibility. And the young women who were sent into these homes by their parents, by the priest, by the doctor, by the local guard, by the local priest, uh, they were the ones that were blameless. They were the people who had no choice. Everybody else can claim institutionalisation, but they had choices in the matter. And there were very few who were prepared to stick their heads uh, above uh, the parapet. The actual report read almost like a narrative and it was extraordinary that there were so few findings in relation to the uh, innate cruelty and inhumanity and the despicable nature of, of, of these institutions. And um, I mean, we shouldn't get too hung up on individual claims. I, 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 I dare say because, you know, the women were going impregnant, I'd say that the, the instances of, for example, sexual abuse would have been relatively few, given that the institutions were mainly run uh, by, by nuns. But there were instances of physical abuse that weren't dealt with adequately, in my view, in the report. And I think that some of the accounts given by survivors were not just taken seriously enough. Uh, I think that the language itself, as you uh, adverted to, and Catherine Connolly referred to this in her very strong speech in the Doyle uh, last week, uh, was, was inappropriate at times uh, in relation to a sensitive subject matter uh, like this. But I mean, the, 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 the net point, 
that, that I made, and it, was, it struck me when I was reading it, is that the, the cruelty began once a, a, a girl, uh, and there were a lot of them were girls, 12, 13, 14 in Irish society, uh, became pregnant when she wasn't married. Once that happened, that person just became a, a victim. And the cruelty began from that moment and followed them throughout the whole of their lives. And as we have seen from the testimony of survivors, this was a superating sore in Irish society. And it's very evident that the wound has not yet been healed. And this report, uh, I, I think, signally failed to do what it should have been, to, to go towards healing that wound uh, that has, has affected us for the last 40 or 50 years. The clock is ticking on us. But before we go, um, Jack, uh, this is a, a broad brush politics podcast. It tends to deal a lot with Irish politics, but it also deals with international politics. And there's a figure who's uh, hovered over, casts his shadow over this podcast and over the world for quite a long time now. There are, by my count, as we record this, five hours and 13 minutes left in the Donald Trump presidency. Uh, what did it mean to you? Yes, five hours left and, and he's departing the, the stage with the, the grace and poise that one might expect of the character. Um, what did it mean to me, Crikey? I mean, it was it was the most incredible uh, political story, I think, of, of our of our of recent times, you know, um, that a figure like Barack Obama, who portrayed himself uh, in, in, in narrative form to be a unifying uh, almost at times kind of messianic figure, you know, who could deliver America from disunity um, to, to after two terms, be replaced by someone who, you know, almost, and almost to it really, like actively sought to sow disunity. Um, and and for that kind of change to happen and, and then the four years uh, of the Trump presidency to to complete. I think if, if, I, if I have one, one takeaway, I think that, it is that the the institutions of American democracy have been tested as never before, um, by a kind of proto demagogue whose whose only incapacitating factor is his own incompetence. It seems, but um, you know, I think they've they've proved relatively resolute so far. You know, I think that there hasn't been a a, a breakdown in the kind of the, the 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 checks and balances on on the powers of the president, um, aided probably by by your man's own incompetence, um. And I think we're, but that that being said, we're heading into a very tricky, very dicey period in the history of American democracy, and you see that with the the storming of the Capitol. I mean, imagine being able to say that the storming of the Capitol is a thing that actually happened, and um, that that like you know these kind of weird militia types came together and actually overran the Capitol police and were inside in the dome in the chamber in people's offices. I mean, what strange times we're living in. Um, and 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 the capacity of the American of of, of American um, pillars of democracy to to withstand that, I think they've stood up to to they've survived the Trump era, but post Trump will perhaps be just as trying in 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 similar ways. We shall see. We'll have to leave it there. I'll, I'll leave. I won't put that question to you guys now, but I, I suspect we'll be touching on on the consequences of Trump for 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 some time to come. Yet, I don't think that story is over at all. But that is it for today. Thanks to Jennifer, to Harry, and to Jack, and to our producer Jennifer Ryan. If you would like to get in touch with us, we're always pleased to hear from you. Just mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 